HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hello and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And you know, vegetarianism, for the first time, I would say, in history, well, definitely, the first time in history in America, is finally mainstream. I think we can say that it is finally mainstream. It was always kind of considered fringe elements in the past and... uh, I don't know, protests, uh, um, uh, quasi-religious type groups wanting to make a statement. Now it's a way of life. And whether it's a decision, a philosophical decision, or a health decision, or a taste decision, it is definitely mainstream. And my guest today is no... Um, stranger to Heritage Radio. She's been on the show before. She and her husband, Karen Page, and her husband, Andrew Dornenberg, have written, I, don't, I can't tell you how many books. I'm going to ask her when, when we get her going here. But she has a new book out called The Vegetarian Flavor Bible. And this follows the Flavor Bible from a few years back, which was a real ground baker, breaker and became one of the must-have books, as, as the publisher said. And then there was the Food Lover's Guide to Wine, which she came and talked about with Andrew on the show, and so many more books. This one, the Vegetarian Flavor Bible, I think probably takes people by surprise. And once they look at the book, it's going to be another one of those must-have books. Karen, welcome. Thank you so much, and thank you for the kind words. I well, appreciate that. It is, you know, it's not, it's not a cookbook it, per se. Although, if you look at the flavor combinations that you have talking about vegetables, you could, it almost makes a recipe for you. 
Exactly. And I think it, it can be a cookbook, but it's only for a certain type of cook, which is a more experienced cook or a more intuitive cook. And I think probably 75% of the population really relies on recipes. They need those lists of uh, ingredients and quantities and steps. Right. But uh, the other 25% of the population who does cook intuitively likes to walk into a kitchen and you know open the refrigerator door and see what's in there and see what they can use up and put things together more spontaneously. This is the kind of cookbook they like to to cook from. That's right. And, and I, Karen and I were talking before the show, and I said, gee, a lot of the young, and I'm young in particular, I said, because they're of a generation that didn't grow up cooking and learning to cook. And a lot of um, young friends who are vegetarians, they could really use this book, but they wouldn't know how to use this book. And you're right. They, they really need more of a step-by-step. But any one experience in the kitchen you don't have to be experienced but anyone at least knowing their way around the kitchen a little bit can look at this book and and explain a little bit what you mean by by and this is your section um the majority of the section which are the flavor combinations of vegetables and herbs and things what tell us how how Tell us about that. Sure. Um, The heart of the book is actually an A to Z guide to literally hundreds of ingredients and the herbs, spices, and other seasonings that best enhance the flavor of those ingredients. So whether we're talking about acai berries or zucchini blossoms or anything in between, you can find ideas for how to pair those ingredients or how to group those ingredients in ways that the synergy really enhances the flavor. So one plus one doesn't just equal two, one plus one equals three, or one plus one plus one can equal five. You know, there's really a value that's created through the synergies of these flavors. And once you understand these flavor pairings and affinities, you can apply them in a whole host of ways. So, um, for example, if you're a fan of Marcona almonds and Manchego cheese and, um, you know, you can throw those uh, together uh, in more traditional Spanish applications or you can throw them in a pasta or pizza. And it's just, you know, a way to think about things sort of modularly. Um, so that you can really enhance the cooking of whatever it is you're making. It also helps one think outside the box a little bit, too. Absolutely, you know, because some of them are you know, common ing- ingredient pairings like basil and tomato, which everybody knows, peanut butter and jelly. We've known, on, right. known that since we were five years old or sooner. Um, but when you think about some of the more complex and sophisticated flavor pairings that are used in some of the b- very best restaurant kitchens all across the country and in some cases around the world, then you realize these are time-tested Uh, flavor affinities that you can put to work in your own kitchen no matter what you're making and so um, it's a great idea starter for people to kind of flip through the pages and see what flavors go well together and see how they can apply them whether in sweet or savory creations whether you're making an appetizer entree or dessert or a cocktail for that matter there's a big uh, group of fans of the flavor bible that are mixologists and i think the same is going to be true of this book excellent um and of course, these a lot of these flavor combinations have been around for centuries. Um, people just because you, you didn't you didn't make this up. <laughs> <laughs> you know that that's the history of food when you think of it about it, which is what we're here talking about. Um, how do people? Why do these flavor combinations that are known as classics come to be? And it's because people started playing with the ingredients that they had locally, whether they were in Asia or in North America or in South America or other parts of the world. And you start seeing, oh, this combination works well together. This combination does not. And you kind of weed out the combinations that don't work well, and you kind of stick with those others that become classic pairings, classic dishes. And, you know, we, we get to a point, you know, one of the trends, I talk about five trends um, that have shaped history, the 
getting us to the point that we're at now where vegetarianism has become mainstream, one of the forces has been globalism, where these were individualized cuisines that developed. And then you've got people like Molly Katzen, God bless her heart, who was a huge folk music and folk dancing fan. And she went to these folk festivals back in the 60s and 70s and saw and, and tasted all of this incredible cuisine from the Middle East um, that she'd never been exposed to before. And that's why the heart of, you know, when you think of vegetarian restaurants and vegetarian cuisines, you think of dishes like hummus and falafel right. and baba ganoush. And I always wondered, why was that? It's because Molly Katzen went to the folk <laughs> festivals and she wrote about them in Moosewood Cookbook, which sold millions of copies. And then vegetarian restaurants all around the country and all around the world started being influenced by that. Right. And people who are not um, accustomed to eating vegetarian or, or not, who aren't vegetarians, let's put it that mm-hmm. way, who are nothing wrong with that either. We love omnivores and flexitarians. And, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of them, they, I think they shy away thinking, oh, it's, I have to eat all my vegetables. You know, it's like I have to eat the, the plain broccoli and the plain carrots and plain whatever else is on my plate and I don't get to you know, shake it up. And yet anyone who has exposure, as you just said, to international foods, international cuisines, they're eating vegetarian without even knowing it. Exactly. You eat a rice pilaf or something, and you don't you don't realize you're you don't eating think about it as a vegetarian. vegetarian dish. You think about it as a Moroccan dish or as an Ethiopian dish, and you don't really you know think about it in that way. Um, and I think that you know Alan Richman, who's probably earned more James Beard awards than any any other culinary professional in the world. Um, he's a restaurant critic for GQ magazine, and he had named Veg Restaurant in Philadelphia one of his top 12 restaurants of the year. And he said, I had a hard time believing that this the, the flavors were just so satisfying, so exciting, and this is all without meat or dairy or eggs. I had a hard time believing that vegan cuisine had come this far, this fast, without an accompanying outpouring of acclaim. And I think that is absolutely right. I think that it's amazing. I was amazed personally as a foodie. I've been writing about food professionally for two decades. I've visited a lot of restaurants. I was not aware of the level of cuisine that you can find today in some of the very best vegetarian and vegan restaurants in the United States. And it was eye-opening to me as it was to Alan Richman, as it is to um, Jonathan Gold at the LA Times, as it is to uh, Michael Bauer at the San Francisco Chronicle or Phil Vitell in the Chicago Tribune, who have all written with, you know, mind-blowing surprise about their restaurant experiences, whether at Gracias Madre in San Francisco or the Green Zebra in Chicago or other restaurants where they're really being blown away by the cuisine that they're seeing. All right. And also, and we were talking earlier that more so than ever before, um, chefs, big name chefs of, of non-vegetarian restaurants are including vegetarian offerings also on, exactly. their, on their menus. And, and sometimes in the least likely places you would ever expect. I've been going to Picheline restaurant for the last tw- better part of the last 20 years. I've celebrated birthdays there. I've celebrated anniversaries there. We went to our friend's wedding there. And I always went for the wild game. And I that was what I thought was his specialty. And that's what I went for. So when Andrew and I had changed our diet back in May of 2012, um, I kind of shied away from the restaurant, frankly, and I hadn't gone so much. And I realized that he had found out belatedly, he'd put on a vegetarian tasting menu. So you could get a three course or a five course or a seven course vegetarian tasting menu there. So we finally went in to try it. And it blew our minds that someone who we knew as a real expert in the flavor of wild game had one of the very best vegetarian tasting menus in America. I mean, you know, a good chef, as as Andrew, who's sitting in our studio with us today, knows it's all about extracting the most flavor 
from the best ingredient that you have, no matter what it is. Definitely. And you're seeing that time and time again, whether it's at Restaurant Danielle in New York City or Per Se in New York City or the French Laundry out in Napa Valley or restaurants in between, you're seeing that the very best restaurants what they can do with a vegetarian or vegan tasting menu in the case of 11 Madison Park, where I had the best vegan tasting menu of my life, but also one of the best meals of my life that just happened to be vegan. Hmm. Interesting. Well, let's let's look at the history a little bit. Um, Certainly, things have come a long way in America. We talked about international cuisines. Yes, they're, you know, go to Italy and you eat a bowl of pasta with wonderful mushrooms and and sauces and things, and you don't realize you're having a vegetarian. Right. Right. But in America, it has been a little slow to develop. In the early days, you know, you think vegetarian, you think, ah, a lot of tempeh, a lot of, you know, (laughs) tofu, tofu, seitan, sprouts. Um, but and brown rice. Oh, the brown oh, probably, rice. Well, that was, you know, we're talking, you know, the whole macrobiotic, exactly. you know, vegetarian movement there. But um, but certainly it has come a long way. But tell, bring us back a little bit about some of the early the early movements through vegetarianism in America. Sure. You know, it, it's interesting because uh, just as you think of how vegetarianism evolved, um, you know, I, I have a timeline in Chapter 1 of the Vegetarian Flavor Bible that actually goes back to the founding of the Hindu religion. So I go way back. <laughs> I like to be thorough. <laughs> yeah, right. um, but um, I think it establishes the fact that it is true in many countries around the world that there were religious influences and ethical considerations that led a number of people um, to feel that this is not something that we in our particular religion, whether it's Hinduism or Taoism or Buddhism or Jainism or you know a whole host of religions around the world, this is not something that we want to embrace. So we're going to embrace a vegetarian cuisine. Um, some, uh, something else uh, that was interesting uh, globally was finding out about the Sikh religion, which I was only aware of through a few interesting conversations with New York City taxi drivers hmm. <laughs> that I got yeah. into interesting talks with and found out that they were vegetarian. But apparently when you go to a Sikh home, it's not that they have the, the moral issues about eating meat. Why they eat vegetarian is because their belief in hospitality, that if you're going to have someone in your home, you want to have food that's available to the greatest number of people. And so they respect the fact that others practice religions that do not allow them to eat meat. So they serve uh, most typically, if you go to a Sikh home, you know they will serve you a vegetarian meal because they want it to be available to the greatest number of people. And I love that idea of hospitality because I've gone to certain events as a food professional where I, you know, kind of go from station to station to station and I see this chef's offering a seafood dish, this chef's offering uh, a meat dish and so on and so forth. And I'm like, well, now that I'm eating vegetarian, <laughs> what am I going to eat? So I do believe that, you know, having things that are available to the greatest number of people is great. But anyway, getting back to the history in the United States, I think there were um, it, there are re- religious roots as well. Um, there was the um, Bible Christian Church um, that came over from uh, UK uh, and they wanted to establish the, the church in the um, U.S. And so it was ministers and pilgrims who came over and uh, set up in Philadelphia and the surrounding area in the mid-Atlantic and really worked to convince people of their religion and their vegetarian practices. And that really spread. And then there were other individuals, like we think of, you know, the Graham Cracker comes to mind, Sylvester Graham, who's credited um, in some cases with um, developing the idea behind the Graham Cracker um, that that we know so well, um, that he was someone who really went around and talked a lot about the uh, 
health reasons um, uh, behind vegetarianism. And there were other key people, you know, as you move forward through time, um, we think of John Harvey Kellogg in Michigan, heart of the Midwest, you know, (laughs) and those breakfast cereals where they really um, developed it. He actually came up through the Seventh-day Adventists. The um, Adventists were um, uh, founded by Ellen White and her husband, and she got a vision from God (laughs) to uh, practice and promote a vegetarian diet. And so she actually put um, uh, Kellogg through medical school in New Jersey. He came back to Battle Creek, and by that point they had started a sanitarium that eventually uh, became the world-renowned sanitarium that it was at that point in time that attracted some of the world's most wealthy um, industrialists and philanthropists and entertainers and so forth um, to come and really do a healing through eating a vegetarian meal while they were there. And breakfast cereals were a big part of it because uh, before that time in history, the average breakfast would be things like whiskey and sausage <laughs> and so right. forth. And when they developed the whole this whole line of breakfast cereals, that is what transitioned breakfast from a predominant predominantly meat-driven meal of the day to a predominantly grain-driven meal of the day. Of course, today it's predominantly sugar-driven meal of the day. <laughs> Cereal has come a long way. But yes, anyway, indeed. that's another topic. But there we go. <laughs> right. Um, well, it, and... I had mentioned, you know, I wanted to talk about American vegetarianism because we had, we were a little slow to come to realizing, you know, the the good flavors we could get from vegetables. But during this whole time, too, and prior to this time, of course, throughout um, Europe, Western Europe, there were all kinds of vegetarian movements that were... Um, were more successful, I, I would say, perhaps. Philosophical yeah. uh, movements. And, you know, a lot of the people who were adherents of that came to the U.S. and brought some of those beliefs right. and interests with them. You and mentioned developed. the Baptists, right? Yep. And um, they came over. And so they would uh, found um, businesses like media businesses or health food stores. And there was a lot that kind of trickled through the culture that way. Um, and, you know, I think it's been kind of a, the, the story of vegetarian, vegetarianism in history has been kind of a um, back and forth between supply and demand, like the demand um, has sometimes outpaced supply uh, that uh, and I think it's been taking some time to catch up. So, you know, while the uh, intention was there in a lot of cases for vegetarianism, you know, basically you couldn't go, you had to go to a specialty health food store for many years and they might be a little dusty and you know, the kind of stereotypes of things you wouldn't understand. Exactly. Exactly. And now you go to Whole Foods or you go to your corner grocery store and there is, you know, non-dairy milks in the in the dairy aisle, and there's, you know, non-dairy cheeses and so forth. So the whole industry has sprung up that makes it a far cry from where it was in the 50s, 60s, 70s right. as it was developing. And also there was a period of time when all, for some reason, all the food, the vegetarian food, perhaps it was, as you, as you mentioned, demand, sort of had to take the form of looking like something else, like looking like a turkey leg or looking like a hamburger or look like the faux meat. Exactly. Yes. There right. was a big that emphasis a big on that. Right. right. And, I, and I think that's how the vegetarian and vegan cuisine of today is really shifting in that vegetables are being embraced by chefs of all stripes, omnivores and vegan alike, um, as the center of the plate as being the most delicious things you can possibly have in your plate um, to the point where top chefs will tell you that the flavor profiles of a dish are really rooted in its vegetables, its herbs and its spices. So they're looking to bring more flavor to their 
plates, and that's why they're turning to vegetables. And they're turning to better and better vegetables. And you can go back to, you know, I guess if you don't want to go back that far, you can go back to Alice mm-hmm. Waters, certainly, who founded Chez Panisse um, and really celebrated um, those individual relationships with farmers and raised the quality of produce that we could get in America because you couldn't get that from a commercial supplier. She had to develop those relationships with farmers herself. And that, I think, you know, young 20-something foodies today might not realize, you know, they might take that for granted that that's always been the case because there's a farmer's market on every corner and there are CSA boxes you can get delivered to your home. But back in, in you know, the, that point in time, the 60s, the 70s, it was sort of a low point. That's right. Uh, where you, the availability just wasn't right. there. Um, Heritage Radio just recently celebrated the 25th anniversary of Slow Food mm-hmm. with Carla Petrini and Alice Waters here at the Wonderful. Um, in, in the uh, courtyard at Roberta's. And and we still have a ways to go, but mm-hmm. they indeed did speak about the uh, uh, the wasteland of, of uh, fresh farmers markets. Not so long ago, and actually. It wasn't so long ago. Yeah, at all. but the progress yeah. that's been made is certainly something worth celebrating. And there's lots of heroes that you can point to. You know, I'm thinking of the Culinary Vegetable Institute in Ohio, mm. where Farmer Lee Jones, right, who's, Farmer Lee Jones, <laughs> God right. bless them, who's that regular fixture at a lot of the James Beard Awards. You know, he'll be there with his red bow tie Suspender and the suspenders, suspenders and the overalls, <laughs> um, and at this black tie event. Um, and just you know, he's got the utmost respect from the chefs that he supplies for really um, giving them vegetables herbs, spices, vegetables and herbs, you know, microgreens that they can't really get anywhere else, not at that quality. Well, we're going to talk more about the flavors, the flavor portion of the Vegetable Flavor Bible when we come back after a short break. You are listening to Signal Dub by Evan Hashi on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast regional forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Okay, we are back here on A Taste of the Past, and I'm talking with Karen Page, whose new book is The Vegetarian Flavor Bible. And Karen... Um, earlier I had mentioned uh, or at the top of the show 
different reasons people um, became vegetarians. But and one I said philosophical, or they you know it was a protest, or like it became a religion. And I didn't mean religious. And you brought in religions, which of course is is a very valid point because so many religions are you know are vegetarian religions. But there. For a while, early, back in the early days of the 60s, right, when, um, there, people would adopt vegetarianism as a religion almost and, and then proselytize. And I think that was probably a turnoff to a lot of people saying, well, I don't want to hear mm-hmm. your rant and rave about it. Mm-hmm. If you do it, do it. You know, I'm going to eat what I want to eat, which you know, today we don't. We don't see that today. Today, it's, you know, everyone has their own corner, and, and that's what they and, take. And I think that that's by, you know, necessity. I think you cannot legislate to someone what they're going to choose to eat. And as an omnivore for <laughs> the better part of uh, five decades of my life, um, I was really turned off. When I would come home from Grand Central Station, I was working out in Connecticut, and would come home, you know, late at night, 7, 8 o'clock, and I would be, I remember being accosted by people who were handing me these vegan pamphlets right. of, of the way animals were treated, and I was like, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to see this. You know, just get it out of my face. And I was really, you know, I would kind of shut it off. And, you know, as a result, I never really thought, you know, to any deep degree of the of certain aspects of what I was eating and how it got to my plate. Um, so I think that there's a, people need to be ready to, you know, find out whether it's environmental impact of what they eat or where their food comes from or what, the, you know, their cholesterol level is and right. the ways that they might be able to lower it. Um, I think that everybody comes to it from a different perspective. But I think that the bottom line is I do not proselytize. I think people, every individual needs to decide what they're going to put on their plate and put in their mouth. And I just hope that they, they're as informed as possible to make those decisions that are as healthful and as delicious as possible. All right. Um, and so, well, so you personally, what, you, what, what drew you to change your diet suddenly? Yeah, um, as you said, I think in the top of the show, it's a, it's a change that I think a lot of people are surprised by. Um, I myself couldn't be more surprised. I grew up in the Midwest, as I understand you did mm-hmm. too, and I don't know about you, but I grew up eating meat at least three times a day. Um, and so... I never really thought I could be vegetarian. I didn't think it was physically possible for me. The thought of giving up meat for 24 hours, I just didn't think it was possible. So when I started getting interested in, in this, and, and quite honestly, it came um, upon the death of my father at the end of 2009. Um, he, I had lost my stepmother um, to cancer also uh, three years before. And just a few years before that, Andrew had lost both of his parents also to cancer. So I think as food professionals, we kind of put those headlines on hold and really think about them too much linking nutrition and wellness but I think after the death of four people that were near and dear to us um, we started thinking about things differently and as I started hitting a major birthday in my life I you know couldn't really ignore that anymore and I thought well you know I, I am going to you know scale back on my meat consumption I thought well maybe I should experiment with this so I didn't tell a soul other than Andrew and he said well I'll support you in this and so we went 24 hours we did not eat any meat and it was the first time in my life and then we went another 24 hours. It turned into a week. It turned into a month. It turned into the last two and a half years. And I have to say, um, I'm a foodie, first and foremost. If it, I hadn't found this little experiment to be as delicious and satisfying and adventurous and fun, um, I, I 
not sure I could have continued on this path. And now I've gotten to the point where without any effort, I have lost over 25 pounds, as has Andrew. I mean, completely unexpectedly, because I think we actually eat a greater quantity of food than we ever have before. Um, it's just, you know, nutrient-dense food that tends to be lower in calories. So the weight has just kind of fallen off. We have more energy. We feel better. We're more productive than ever before. And, you know, it's just interesting to see what happens. Yeah. I find that um, I'm, I would call myself a flexitarian. I, I can go days without, without meat and I enjoy meat, a nice piece of nice, you know, heritage breed <laughs> of <laughs> turkey or something. Yes. Um, but it's not, it doesn't have to, no longer is the center of my plate. You know, sort of move the meat off to mm, the side of the good plate. Good for you. Bit, you know? um, but, you know, if I have a, a plate full of sautéed onions and, and kale that's tender but a little crispy on the edge with some roasted squash cubes in the middle, who needs anything else? Exactly. I mean, you know, again, the flavor. So that's what I wanted to talk about was flavor. You have this wonderful little chart and line that you give and, and the... You call the flavors, um, you give them volumes. Yes. Talk about the volume of flavor. Uh, what is squash? It's not loud. Yes. So um, what we tried to do is to really um, codify in the Flavor Bible, the original Flavor Bible, which came out in 2008, you know, for people who are unfamiliar with ingredients, what are we talking about here? If you've never had a turnip or kohlrabi or some of these other great uh, vegetables, what are we talking about in terms of flavor? So we would give a brief, brief description and then try to characterize the weight. Um, so really talking texturally, are we talking about something that's very light? Um, in some cases, um, you know, a very light herbs, for example or some vegetables, um, cucumbers on the light side, or something really heavy. So um, something like, uh, well, certainly meat is one of the most calorically dense things you can eat. So in the Flavor Bible, we talked about, you know, a lot of um, meat, you know, whether especially red meat as, you know, beef, venison as being very um, heavy. So from light to heavy, and then in terms of flavor volume, we talked about it from uh, quiet, <laughs> quote unquote, <laughs> to loud. And the quiet was things like tofu, something with a very neutral flavor base that you would add flavors to um, in order to give it interest um, versus something loud like wasabi, you mm -hmm. know, just blue cheese, something that demands to be so basically you think, you know, from the scale from bland to, exactly. to spicy, you know, or, or peppery or something. Yeah. Exactly. And so it was just a way to think about flavor in a way that we never had before. And I think that we found it very useful um, also in terms of our work as uh wine writers. We were the wine columnists for the Washington Post, and our f particular focus was on pairing food and wine. And a lot of times it was helpful to know what's driving things here. And if you've got a loud food, you really, there's no other way but to work around the food. So if All you've right. got wasabi, or if you've got, you know, chili peppers, you've really got to work around that. That's a predominant flavor. And so you're looking to kind of cleanse the palate, either with sweetness or with bubbles, um, and really to juxtapose those two things. And I, I, but I think that those distinctions that we started making as wine writers, we really brought that into the work that we did um, subsequently. And so with the Vegetarian Flavor Bible, um, we do continue to um, illustrate in photographs and also in the text, um, you know, the different aspects of these uh, beautiful uh, vegetables, whether it's their appearance, it's their flavor, it's their texture, and it's all those combinations. Well, and, that you, give a, and you also give a nice nutritional breakdown, which I think, I mean, it's, it's helpful for people okay, they may know, yes, I like all this, and I, and I know that I want to pair something, you know, bright with something, you know, softer, but mm -hmm. am I getting, 
the proper nutrition. Exactly. And you do break that down for people. Well, you know, I um, had been asked, what I learned was when, when you go vegetarian, you tell people you're eating a vegetarian meal or a vegetarian diet, um, They the first question you get asked is, how do you get your protein? <laughs> and I realized that I'd been, in, I'd won two James Beard Awards, I'd been a professional food writer for a better part of two decades, and I had never had any training in nutrition. And I was interested in the books, and I read lots of diet books, nutrition books, you know, sort of avocationally, just of, you know, interest as a human being, but not really thinking too deeply about it until the point came that I um, decided to change my diet and decided to write this book. And I thought, I cannot advocate a diet that I do not know to be healthful. And so I actually went back to school. I went to Cornell and I went through the program um, that's co-sponsored uh, co by the T. Colin Campbell Foundation at Cornell, which gives I, a certificate I, I, in plant-based nutrition. I want to say you do use um, several different doctors as references um, yes. through the book to exactly. help you with the information. T. Colin Campbell is, is okay, so now I see exactly. where the connection is there. Yeah, okay. so I, I studied um, through that program, and that was really life-changing. But th that got me interested in studying other uh, work, um, like, um, for example, Joel Furman's work, mm -hmm. who wrote the bestseller Eat to Live, talks a lot about nutrient density. And so in the book, uh, in the Vegetarian Flavor Bible, one of the features you'll find is a macronutrient profile. So people always say, how do you get your protein? It's like, well, I, uh, I eat plants. Plants have <laughs> protein. And so you can look up any plant-based ingredient in the book and you'll find out that um, certain green vegetables have as much as 40% more protein. Mushrooms have a Mushrooms significant amount incredible. of protein. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's all there. And people now that, you know, I, I hope that the vegetarians will champion this by knowing, you know, hey, just read the book. You know, there's protein in everything. Right, right. So I, I'm glad to see that you got a lot of support from, from people for this book. And um, you do, oh, I loved the... Um, the acronym that uh, Dr. Furman uses, G-bombs. G-bombs. Remember yes. G-bombs. <laughs> what are G-bombs? I love that. It's um, greens, greens. Uh, be uh, beans, onions, mushrooms, berries, and seeds. That's it, G-bombs. And you want to try to eat some of those every day. I don't probably hit it every single day, but I try pretty hard. <laughs> and our favorite pizza these days is a mushroom pizza that we get on a thin, organic, uh, multi-grain crust. And, mush and mushrooms, mushrooms are, I mean, people would be surprised to know how much protein there, oh, there yeah. is in mushrooms. No, I, mean, really I mean, for him to put it on his list of G-bombs that these are something you want to eat every day, yeah. um, great properties. Right. And of course, everyone's familiar with my Michael Pollan's writings, and he's been a frequent guest here mm. at the radio network as well. And, you know, it's sort of like uh, my my mantra is one of Julia Child's, which is everything in moderation. <laughs> <laughs> I think she'd say deer at the end of deer, that. Of deer, of course she would, yes. <laughs> um, but he, of course, said eat food, mostly plant and not mm -hmm. too much. And so, again, he's not, mm -hmm. he, you know, he's not. He's not preaching a vegetarian diet, but we have to think responsibly about our planet and what's happening, too. Exactly, um, which is why it's attracting people like Bill Gates to invest in certain companies, you know, beyond meat or beyond eggs and, you know, giving people alternatives that will, you know, as you look at the population, that the rate it's growing and the fact that we won't be able to feed the population in 2050, he's thinking ahead along with other farsighted investors to um, new solutions that will be able to sustain the planet in the years to come. Um, right. Well, you wrote something that um, I will read <laughs> your words, but I'll read them and then, we, and then you can explain them and talk about them. Because you say, ultimately, the decisions each of us makes throughout the day give us the opportunity to create the future of food and the world by voting with our forks. Mm, that was excellent. Excellent little, little sentence there that you came up with. So 
We, if we vote with our forks, we eat more vegetables, we eat responsibly, we know where our food comes from. I Definitely. That's Absolutely. Really interesting yeah, and do. it's it's mostly vegetables. These are the most nutrient dense things you can eat, especially green vegetables. But it's also fresh fruits. It's also legumes. It's also whole grains and nuts and seeds uh, to accent that. And you know that's really should be the center, I think, of any healthy diet. You know, Michael Pollan, who you just quoted, said mm-hmm. that he'd interviewed some of the leading experts on nutrition in the United States, and the only thing that you can rely on is the fact that they're not going to agree, but they will agree <laughs> on one thing, and that is that a plant based diet um, is best for the health of the planet and for the health of people. There you go. So if you're a little timid about trying it, um, you certainly have heard of Meatless Mondays. Well, interesting little fact I learned from your book, Karen, because mm. I didn't know this, is that Meatless Mondays were actually introduced around the start of World War One. Isn't in that? 1917. Yeah. I, I had no idea until I started researching this book. I thought it was like a hip I modern it was recent, campaign. Yeah, right. that, and, you know, and God bless them for bringing it back. But they, too, will acknowledge that this is something, this is part of American history, that as part of the war effort, we had meat, uh, Meatless Mondays, mm-hmm. they call it Meat Free Mondays in the UK, and they've got a wonderful... Um, organization there that's promoting meat-free Mondays, but in the U.S., the effort has been known as Meatless Mondays, and that they um, uh, it was started as a war effort um, to support the troops overseas, to be able to send um, vital supplies overseas. They asked Americans to limit their pr- uh, consumption of meat, um, and in some cases of wheat and other products, so that it would be available for the right, war effort. Right. Well, certainly America is a country that consumed or consumed and still continues to consume more meat than than most other countries um and i mean Much other countries more. yeah yes. other countries use a little piece and then use it to use it to flavor everything else and stretch the food exactly. as you were talking about the hospitality thing you know it was not because they were living necessarily a vegetarian diet they were stretching whatever they had to you know to feed a lot of people in other mm-hmm. ways too um yeah. sometimes consciously vegetarian sometimes not and you know and we of course always think of that haunch of <laughs> of meat in the middle of the table to be the center of our our meal. Well, it's so nice that things are changing because yeah. I think to be able to serve more vegetables and fruits that have such protective qualities for people's bodies and have just wonderful, delicious flavors to celebrate, I think it's a step in the right direction. Right. So I think we can try to eliminate at least one day meat from one day of our diet. That's a start. That's good. Absolutely. Well, and this book and is don't just, stop there. <laughs> no, well, no, no. Um, and this book and on your husband Andrew Dornenberg has done all the photography for this book and it's absolutely gorgeous. It's it makes the makes the food come to life. It really to does. Say. I'm yeah. thrilled with the photography job he did. He's just <laughs> it's been a wonderful adventure for us to be able to learn how to collaborate in a whole new way. It's an educational tome, but it's a it's a fun book to read and it's a very useful book to just refer to when you're not sure if you're, you know, embarking on on that vegetarian turn or if you are you've always been a vegetarian and you want to know more about what it is you eat or what to eat this is the book for you it's just a a great book and thank you so much for joining me thank you so much for saying so it's always a pleasure to speak with you linda so much fun the vegetarian flavor bible by karen page and andrew dornenberg for photographs thanks for joining me and thanks for listening in this has been a taste of the past and i'm your host linda palaccio Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>